You can open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 5. Genesis chapter 5. I want to talk to you about walking with God. Walking with God. Now just to kind of catch you up uh, quickly as to what we've studied over the past weeks. We have looked at Genesis chapter 1 all the way through the end of chapter 4. And we've seen that God created everything. He created humanity, Adam and Eve, in his own image. And he gave them... Uh, one tree in the midst of a garden full of trees of which they were not to eat the fruit. But Satan tempted Eve and Eve ate the fruit and she gave a piece to Adam. Adam ate the fruit and that's when sin entered the world. That is commonly referred to as the fall, paradise lost. And because of that, there are implications or consequences for that first sin that we see all around us today because... After Adam and Eve sinned, everyone who was conceived of a man and a woman was born with a sin nature. You were born with a sin nature. I was born with a sin nature, and that's why we sin. We, we are corrupted by the fall, and that's why our world is haywire. That's why there is terrorism, and that's why there are wars, and why there are murders, and why there is uh, theft and why there is deceit, and why there is immorality. It all goes back to the fall. We are all ruined by the fall. We all have a sin nature. But we saw some good news that even in Genesis chapter 3, when God addressed Adam and Eve after their sin, God had a plan of redemption in place. He was going to send someone through the seed of the woman. We know that to be Jesus Christ, who would crush the head of the serpent. And so after chapter 3, we begin to see God working out this plan to send a Redeemer. Now in chapter 4 last week we saw that, that because of the fall, because of the sin nature of humanity, things begin to go haywire. And we saw all, all sorts of problems, beginning with Cain killing his brother Abel. Then we see that Cain has some children and has some descendants, and there are some issues that they have, some dysfunction they have, again, because of their sin. But again, chapter 4, even though it's filled with, with, with dark overtones, it ends with a, a bright ray of hope when it says that Adam and Eve had another son named Seth, and the descendants of Seth began to call on the name of the Lord. So there's this believing remnant uh, among the descendants of Adam and Eve. And so what you see developing is you see the line of Cain and the line of Seth. And those two lineages are very, very different. Let me give you this, this quote from Warren Wearsby. He writes, Seth was 105 years old when his son Enosh was born. Enosh means man and comes from a Hebrew word that means frail or weak. It's the word for man that emphasizes how fragile and weak we really are in ourselves. A remarkable thing is recorded in connection with the birth of this boy. At that time, people began to gather together to worship God, proclaim his name, and pray. That's at the end of chapter 4. There is a revival of public worship and believing prayer as the descendants of Seth met together in the name of the Lord. While the worldly Cainites were boasting of their strength and valor... The godly Sethites were giving glory to the name of the Lord. So the stage is set. At the end of chapter 4, you see the Cainites who are dysfunctional and boastful and wicked. And you see the Sethites who are calling on the name of the Lord. These two different lineages coming from Adam and Eve. And that's what we want to pick up tonight. We're going to look more at this 
godly line of Seth in Genesis chapter 5. We're going to see some principles here that are going to teach us what it means and how we are to walk with God. So, I want to give you three important truths. Three important truths from Genesis chapter 5. Three important truths. Everybody ready? You sure? Some of you look kind of tired. Some of you need a nap. But wait till I'm through. All right. Genesis chapter 5. Three, three important truths from this chapter. Number one, this chapter affirms man's value and worth. This chapter affirms man's value and worth. Now we see in chapter 4, things begin to go horribly wrong. Sin has infected the human race. Cain kill, kills Abel. Uh, polygamy begin, or bigamy begins, twisting God's original intention for marriage. There's all these problems. Things are going haywire because of the fall. And yet, something important is reaffirmed about humanity in chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Look what it says. This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them, and he blessed them and named them man when they were created. So there's just a reaffirmation here in the midst of all of this dysfunction that, that man has been created in the image of God. We all are created in the image of God. So if you look there in your notes, humanity is fallen, but humans still bear that image. The image has been marred, all right? It's not as clear as it was when Adam and Eve bore that image before the fall, but we still bear the image of God. We are made in the image of God. Now, I told you that means that we have spiritual capacity to relate to God, spirituality. We have personality, will, and emotions. And we have creativity because we're made in the image of God. We, we have this creative capacity just like God does. And, and, and we all bear this image, the image of God. And so here's what we need to be reminded of by this truth. In the midst of a sin-cursed world, and make no mistake about it, our world has been cursed by sin. Just look around, right? I don't have to convince you that things have gone horribly wrong. In the midst of a sin-cursed world, life has value, meaning, and purpose. Life has value, meaning, and purpose. Don't, don't mistake the presence of sin as... as as demeaning towards the value of humans. We are made in the image of God. We are fallen, we are broken, but we are made in His image. But here's the deal. Our ultimate value, our ultimate meaning, our ultimate purpose can only be realized in being reconciled to our Creator. So we're all made in the image of God, but we'll never understand what that's all about. We'll never understand why we're here. We'll never have purpose and meaning in life until we get right with the one who created us, right? So there are a lot of folks out there who are made in the image of God, and they don't understand what that's all about. They think that they exist for themselves. They think that they're just here to just live it up and chase their pleasure, and, and, and the world revolves around them, and they're missing it. They are made in the image of God. They are made for a relationship with the Creator, and that relationship with the Creator is only made possible through the Creator's Son, Jesus Christ, right? And, and so we are made in the image of God, but we, we'll never figure all of that out. We'll never figure life out. We'll never understand the meaning of life until we are reconciled back to our Creator. Sin has separated us. Jesus died for our sins to wash those sins away. 
And when those sins are washed away, we can be reconciled. We can have a right relationship with the one who made us, our God. So this chapter, just again, at the very beginning, affirms man's value and worth. That's why Christians are, are Bible-believing Christians, are, are ardently, um, ardently for the sanctity of life. We believe every life has intrinsic value and worth because every human has been created in the image of God. And we believe that that personhood, humanity, starts at the moment of conception. There is a life there at the moment of conception, a person there. God is knitting that baby together in their mother's womb. And so we believe that every life has value. Amen? Number two, second important truth from this chapter. Don't let, the, don't let the brevity on point one fool you, okay? Point two and three are a little bit longer, okay? Don't think we're going to get out here early. But here's the, the second important truth. This chapter demonstrates the reign of death. The reign of death. We start seeing a pattern in Genesis chapter 5. What it says in verse 3. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him what? Seth. The days of Adam after he fathered Seth were 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days that Adam lived were 930 years. Let's read those next three words together. And he died. When Seth had lived 105 years, he fathered Enosh. Seth lived after he fathered Enosh 807 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Seth were 912 years. Let's say it together. And he died. When Enosh had lived 90 years, he fathered Kenan. Enosh lived after he fathered Kenan 815 years, had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Enosh were 905 years. Let's say it together. And he died. You see the pattern developing here? Look in verse 14. All the days of Kenan were 910 years. And he died. Look in verse 17. All the days of Mahalel were 895 years, and he died. Look in verse 20. All the days of Jared were 962 years, and he died. Look in verse 27. Thus all the days of Methuselah, oldest man recorded in the Bible, were 969 years. But, guess what? He died. He died. He died. And look at what it says in verse 31. Thus all the days of Lamech were 777 years, and he died. So you see the pattern here. Yes, humans are made in the image of God. And yes, there's a, a godly line developing from Seth, but everyone is infected with the curse of sin, and so death comes to everyone. If you look in your notes, the wages of sin is death, Romans 6.23. The wages of sin is death. But that verse goes on to say, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. But here we see the, the paycheck for sin, death. And here's the deal. We need to understand this. If Jesus tarries in his return, we all have an appointment with death. Hebrews 9.27 says, it is appointed for man to die once and after this comes the judgment. We all have an appointment with death. And let me give you a sobering thought. We're one day closer to that appointment than we were yesterday. Right? And there's not a thing in the world we can do about it. 
may not like it. You may say, wait, it sounds morbid, but it's the reality. We are all one day closer to our appointment with death than we were yesterday. And this is all a result of the fall. And he died. And he died. And he died. And this pattern has continued on through the centuries, even to our loved ones, right? We all have loved ones that have died because of the curse of sin. This chapter demonstrates the the reign of death. Because of sin, death is reigning. Now, the Bible says that that death is the last enemy that will be finally overthrown by Jesus. We'll talk about that later in Sunday morning. But we, but we need to understand that if Jesus tears, we all have an appointment with death. So, we need to be ready for whatever comes after that appointment. It's appointed for a man to die once after this comes the judgment. We want to be right with the judge before that appointment comes, right? When I, when I step out of this life into eternity, and I look into the face of God... I don't want to know him at that point as judge. I want to be able to call him father. How about you? Because if you don't know him as father, if you don't have a personal relationship with him through his son, then you'll know him as judge. And you will pay for your sins in an eternity in that awful place called hell. So we need to be ready. Because death is reigning. It comes to us all. It comes knocking on all of our doors. This chapter demonstrates the reign of death. And he died. But let me give you a third thought here. Again, don't let the brevity of point two fool you. Okay? Third point. This chapter offers the hope of redemption. It reminds us of the value of life. It demonstrates the reign of death. But this chapter is beautiful because it offers us the hope of redemption. There is a, there is a section that breaks the pattern of people dying. And he died, and he died, and he died. But look what happens back in Genesis chapter 5 at verse 21. It mentions Enoch. Enoch was the son of Jared. This is when Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. This was Methuselah, the oldest man recorded in the Bible. This is his father. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God and he died. Is that what it says? No, there's something different here. Enoch walked with God and he was not, for God took him. So in the midst of all of these these reminders of the reign of death, we see this man named Enoch who doesn't die. God just takes him directly to heaven. What a way to go, right? There's another person in the Bible who's taken directly to heaven. Do you remember who that is? Elijah. He was taken to heaven by a whirlwind and a chariot of fire directly to heaven, bypassing death itself. And so we need to give some attention to this man named Enoch. Something's going on here, right? In the midst of all this death, here's Enoch walking with God, and he goes directly to heaven. I want you to notice the presence of a godly man. The presence of a godly man. It says there twice, Enoch walked with God. Enoch walked with God. Now, the Greeks translated the, the Hebrew Old Testament into the language of Greek. Okay, And when they did this, they translated that word walked as pleased. Enoch pleased God. 
twice. Enoch pleased God in verse 22 and in verse 24. Now keep me that in mind. Turn to Hebrews with me. Hebrews chapter 11, New Testament, a passage that is commonly referred to as the hall of faith. Hebrews chapter 11. What it says in verse 5, Hebrews 11, verse 5. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. And he was not found because God had taken him. You know that phrase, he was not found, it means people were looking for him. Where did Enoch go? <laughs> Anybody seen Enoch lately? No, because he'd gone directly to heaven. He was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. The, the, the writer of Hebrews uses that, that Greek translation of the Old Testament. Instead of the word walked, they use the word please. And both are compatible. To walk with God must mean that you are in relationship with Him in such a way that He is pleased by your life. Now, back in, back in Genesis, I want to just walk through what it means to walk with God. What does it mean when it says twice that... Enoch walked with God. Hebrews says he pleased God. What, what does that mean? Because whatever that means, I want in on that. How about you? Whatever he was doing, I want to do that too, don't you? Because his life pleased God. And so if we want to please God, we ought to want to imic, or mimic, imitate. I just put together two words. We ought to want to imitate or mimic what Enoch was doing. So what does it mean to walk with God? This is in your notes. The phrase, walked with God, speaks first of all of intimacy. Intimacy. It says there in verse 22, Enoch walked with God. Verse 24, Enoch walked with uh, God. Twice we're told that he walked. The word walk there in the Hebrew language is the word halak. This word conveys ongoing intimacy with God. The tenses that are used conveys ongoing intimacy with God. So his... His relationship with God was a continual thing. It was a, 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 an intimacy with God. He was walking, as it were, beside God. I love this quote from Charles Spurgeon. I think, this, is this in your notes, the Spurgeon quote? He writes, I'm, I'm a big Spurgeon fan. Spurgeon was a 19th century preacher in London, England. He, he pastored a megachurch before megachurches were cool. And he was just an extraordinary preacher. But here's what he writes about Enoch. He says, walking for continuance implies and engenders close fellowship and great familiarity between friends. But will God in very deed thus walk with men? Yes, he did so with Enoch. And he has done so with many of his people since. He tells us his secret, the secret of the Lord, which he reveals only to them that fear him. And we tell to him alike our joys in praise, our sorrows in prayer, and our sins in confession. The heart, when you're walking with God, the heart unloads itself of all of its cares into the heart of him that careth for us. And the Lord pours forth his floods of goodness as he imparts to the beloved ones a sense of his own everlasting love to them. This is the very flower and sweetness of Christian experience. It's lily and it's rose, it's calamus and myrrh. If you would taste the cream of Christian life, it is found in having a realizing faith and entering into intimate communion with the heavenly Father. So Enoch walked with God. And so he's saying when you walk with God, God reveals uh, depths of who he is to you and you share your hurts with him and you 
confess your sins to him and you take your sorrows to him and tell him your joys in life. It's this, it's this ongoing, close relationship between creature and creator. A creature that's been reconciled to God. And so I want to ask you this question. Do you walk with God? Do you have that kind of intimacy with God? That first sentence by Spurgeon, in this, this phrase implies and engenders close fellowship and great familiarity between friends. Does that describe your walk with God? Great familiarity between friends. Can you call yourself a friend of God? Not just based upon position in Christ, but practice. Do you walk with God? Do you talk with God? Do you spend time with God? Is there intimacy in your relationship? That's what this phrase, walking with God, implies. But not only does it speak of intimacy, it speaks of consistency. Consistency. The Hebrew tense of the verb, used in verses 22 and 24, is hitpael, which emphasizes the continuity of action. So it's a, it's a continual walking. It's not just a one-time thing, but Enoch is day after day walking with God. Notice the timeline. It says he began this walk with God when Methuselah was born. How old was he when Methuselah was born? How old was he? Looking 65. And for how many years after that did he walk with God? 300 years. That's a long time to walk with God. Amen. But he did it. It wasn't a one-time flash-in-the-pan thing. He consistently walked with God for 300 years. Now remember, this is after the fall and before the flood. And we're going to see next week how wicked humanity had gotten because God decides to destroy the entire earth. Right? But notice here, in the midst of all this wickedness, all this depravity, Enoch is walking with God. And here's what we learned by this. Listen. It is possible by the power and grace of God to live a consistently godly life even if the majority of people are not. Let me say it again. This is so important. We need to hear this. Our young people need to hear this. It is possible by the power and grace of God, to live a consistently godly life even if the majority of people are not. How do you know? Because Enoch did it. Surrounded by wickedness. And yet for 300 years, he walks with God. So yes, I know things are getting bad. They're getting really, really bad. But Enoch reminds us that, hey, you can walk with God in the midst of the darkness. Amen? It's possible. You don't have to, to give in to the pressures of the world and the inner, inner longings of the flesh and the temptations of the devil. You can walk with God consistently, even if no one else is. Enoch proves that. So let's walk with God. Let's be shining lights in the darkness, even if the majority of people are not. We uh, went as a family to a restaurant Sunday evening after uh, our uh, worship service and it had a lot of TVs in the restaurant and a lot of them were on channel uh, CBS, whatever channel, CBS, and they were probably all on CBS because the Masters had been on that afternoon and people were watching the Masters golf tournament, go Bubba Watson, but but we we were we were in there and and they just left it on CBS. It was about eight thirty in the evening and we were eating and you know my kids were looking around at the TVs like you know kids do and I don't know what show it was I don't have any idea what show it was but 
some of the most lewd, immoral things I've seen on network television were on the screen. And I told the boys, I said, look away. I called the waitress. I said, can you turn this off? I mean, it was just awful. I'm not, I'm not exaggerating. I'm telling you, it was bad. Bad, bad, immoral stuff that my kids were just soaking in. It's everywhere, everywhere, everywhere. And you think, can we walk with God in the midst of this? Can my kids walk with God in the midst of this? Can I walk with God in the midst of this? Can there be holiness in the midst of such depravity? Enoch says yes. Enoch is a shining example of of walking with God in the midst of great darkness. So don't, don't, you know, don't, don't whine and complain that it's hard. Be like Enoch. Walk with God. All right? Consistently. Hey, how many of you ever have problems with your Christian life being up and down like a roller coaster? You ever, you ever have problems? I have problems with that. I mean, you have a moment, man, you're up, things are good, you're on fire, you're serving, you're excited, you're hungry, and then, you know, you go through a trial, or, or you get sick, or, you know, you get busy, and all of a sudden you know you're far from God, and you're spiritually dry. Do you struggle with consistency ever? I do. Enoch, 300 years of consistently walking with God. I want to be like that. How about you? Not like, not, I, don't, I don't want a roller coaster Christianity. That's miserable. I want to, as Hebrews 12, my favorite verse says, Hebrews 12, 1 and 2 says, we're to run the race with endurance, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. We are called to, to keep on running, even when it's hard. Even if everyone else is running the other direction, we're to keep on running. Say, wait, how do you keep on running when it's difficult? You fix your eyes on Jesus. He'll give you the strength. He'll guide you. He'll help you fix your eyes on Jesus. That's how you do it. And so Enoch walked with God consistently. There's a third thing here, that this word walking with God, phrase walking with God, speaks of. It's the word diligence. Diligence. So turn back with me to Hebrews. I want to show you just a couple of insights from what the writer of Hebrews says about Enoch's walking with God, Enoch's lifestyle. It says there in verse 5, by faith Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. Without faith it is impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists, and he rewards those who seek him. So in context, it seems that, that Enoch pleased God because he drew near to God and he sought him. The two verbs used in verse 6. That word draw near means to approach, to come close to. The word seek is a a compound word. It's ekzateo. It means to seek out, literally. To seek out, to to search for diligently. It's like you're you're really looking for something because you want to find it. And it's saying here that, that Enoch is an example of someone that drew near to God, approached him, got close to him, and and sought him because he wanted to find him. Loanida, the Greek scholars write this about the, the verb seek out. They say it means to exert, listen, considerable effort 
and care in learning something, to make a careful search, to seek diligently to learn, to make an examination. So we learn from this, drawing near, seeking out, we learn that Enoch was diligent in seeking out God. Listen to me. If you are not diligent, you will not walk with God. Because, if you look in your notes, walking with God doesn't happen by accident. There, there's, the, I believe, a, a really harmful view out there that says Christians ought to let go and let God. If we just kind of let go and you know, God's going to do his thing and just, like, just kind of sit there and wait for God to do his thing and we can just kind of just, you know, just kind of wait. But that's not the biblical picture at all. Enoch was diligently, diligently seeking God, diligently drawing near to God over in 1 Timothy 4. It says that we are to discipline ourselves for the purpose of godliness. And he uses the example of an athlete. Just like an athlete disciplines themselves to win an event, we ought to discipline ourselves to walk with God. Walking with God, the kind of intimacy that Enoch experienced does not happen by accident. You've got to build it into your life. And so, I want to give you tonight, this is where I want to spend most of our time. I want to give you seven aspects of walking with God. I want to talk to you about what that diligence looks like. How you can be diligent to walk with God. Seven things that need to be occurring if you're going to walk with God. And these come from George Whitfield. I read a sermon that he preached on this passage in, in Genesis, and it was powerful. He, he was a, a great evangelist in the, the uh, early to mid-1700s. He was from England, but he came to America and did a, a preaching tour through America and saw thousands of people saved. He was like a, a 18th century Billy Graham, a powerful preacher of the word. And he was looking at the life of Enoch, and he wrote seven things. I've kind of rewarded him a little bit, but seven things that are true of those that want to walk with God. All right? Seven things you need to be diligent about if you're going to walk with God. Because remember, walking with God doesn't happen by accident. If it happened by accident, we'd all be walking with God, right? You got you to have some diligence in your life. So what are seven things that you and I need to be diligent about? I'm excited about these things. These are really, really helpful. You ready? Number one, read the Bible. You had to know that was coming, right? Read the Bible. So when I knew that, well, do it. <laughs> Amen? If you knew it, do it. Turn to Psalm 119 with me. Psalm 119, longest chapter in the Bible, and it's all about the Word of God. Psalm 119, verse 1. Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk, there's that same metaphor, walk in the law of the Lord. So the, the Word of God is, is, is a major influencer in their life. They're walking in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart, who also do no wrong, but walk in his ways. So it speaks of those that are walking in the word, that, that make the word a major part of their life. Turn to John in the New Testament, John chapter 15. 
This is the famous abiding chapter where Jesus calls us to abide in him. He's the vine, we're the branches. Speaks of a close relationship with Jesus. It speaks of walking with Jesus. And look what he says in John 15, verse 5. Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do what? Nothing. Listen, if you don't have that verse marked in your Bible, mark it, mark it up. Put a, a, highlight it, underline it. So I don't believe in writing in my Bible. Mark it up. You need to know that verse, all right? It's okay to write in your Bible to help you have good recall and find verses. So it says there, apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me, listen, and my words abide in you. Part of being close to Jesus is to let the words of Jesus, the words of God, abide in our life. And you will never be close to Jesus if his word is not in you. Does that make sense? That's what he says. If you abide in me, my words abide in you. Ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. So Jesus affirms the the necessity of knowing the word of God, internalizing the word of God, saturating yourself with the word of God if you're going to be close to him. The word of God plays a major role in our lives. Read the Bible. Now, just kind of really practical here. If you don't have a Bible reading plan, I, I highly suggest you get one. Uh, years ago, what I used to do is I used to read just a book at a time. I'd read an Old Testament book, and I'd finish that, and I'd go and read a New Testament book, and I kind of went at my own pace. But now, I use a Bible reading plan that it keeps me disciplined, and I read through four sections of Scripture every day, different parts of the Bible. And I'm systematically, systematically working through the entire Bible. And in a year, I'll read through the entire Word of God. And I've, I'm disciplining myself to make sure I'm reading not just the, 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 the parts I know well or enjoy reading, but all the Bible. I'm, making, I'm, I'm exposing myself to all of it. And it's changing me. I'm telling you, it's changing me. If you'll expose yourself to the entire counsel of God, it'll change your life. So Ed, what do I do? Go to Google and type in Bible reading plans, and there will be pages of Bible reading plans. You can print them out, PDFs, and just get started. Just start reading, okay? I use the Discipleship Journal Bible reading plan. I love it. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's just really, it just really resonates with me. There are four readings every, every day, and you read 25 days out of the month. So you have five days to catch up if you get behind or get ahead. And one of the four readings is in the Gospels. It starts in Matthew, and every day you're reading a small chunk of the Gospels all the way through the end of the Gospel of John. And so you're reading from Old Testament two places, you're reading from New Testament book, and you're reading the Gospels every day. And I'm telling you, I just love it. It's just a great, in my opinion, a great approach to exposing yourself to the Word of God. So just try it. Just read the Bible in a disciplined way every day and see the difference it makes. Because... If you're not diligent to read the Bible, you will not walk closely with God. Because walking with God does not happen by accident. Say, I don't have time. Do we want to talk about Facebook? Do we want to talk about SEC football? Or ACC football in my case? Do we we want to talk about all that stuff? I mean, we, we have the time, don't we? We have the time. Read the Bible. Number two, pray. 
You had to know that was coming too. Turn to Psalm 86 with me. Psalm 86, verse 1. These are things that you need to be diligent about if you want to walk with God. Psalm 86, verse 1. This is a prayer of David. I love the language here. Incline your ear, O Lord, and answer me. Turn your ear to answer me, for I am poor and needy. Preserve my life, for I am godly. Save your servant who trusts in you. You are my God. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for to you do I cry all the day. Gladden the soul of your servant, for to you, O Lord, do I lift up my soul. See how many ways David's talking about prayer? I cry to you, I lift up my soul, incline your ear to hear me. He, he, he was a man of, of constant prayer. And I just uh, encourage you, if you want some more encouragement on prayer, to go to the, 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 our website or to iTunes, to our podcast, and listen, listen to the sermon I preached a few weeks ago called uh, A Call to Pray from Colossians chapter 4, verse 2, in uh, the following verses, because I talked a lot in that, that sermon about prayer. But, but we, will not, we, we will not walk with God if we don't pray. Think about it like this. When we read the Bible, God is talking to us. When we pray, we're talking to God. Pretty cool, isn't it? Think, now think about this. When you read the Bible, the God of the universe, the one who keeps the stars in their places and knows them all by name, when you read the Bible, he's talking to you. What an incredible privilege. And when you pray... You're talking to him. Wow. When Jesus died on the cross, the veil was torn in two, which signified we have access to a holy God if our sins are washed away. So if you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you can go into the presence of God, listen, anytime you want and stay as long as you want. That's prayer. And, and, and today I was, I was in my truck and I was driving and, 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 and praying and making a feeble attempt at praying. And I was thinking, why don't I get this? Why don't I get the privilege of prayer? Why do I struggle so much when I'm invited to come and talk to God, the one who created the universe, the one who made me, the one who redeemed me? Why don't I understand what a great privilege this is? So we need to read the Bible. We need to pray. And and again, my sermon, I I give you some kind of practical things about prayer, but the best way to learn how to pray is to pray. I had a preacher tell me one time that the best way to learn how to preach is just to preach. You just got to get it, get up there and do it, and you got to just kind of kind of struggle through it and learn, you know, what kind of what works and what doesn't, and get learn your your you know your style and how God's made you, and you just got to get up there and do it. And it's the same with prayer. The best way to learn how to, to, to pray is just to pray. There are books, and I've read a lot of books, but you just, you just talk to God. That, that, that's the essence of prayer. That's the essence of prayer. So pray. Number three, seven aspects of walking with God. Read the Bible, pray, meditate. Meditate. Look in Psalm 1. Psalm 1. Then I want to show you a verse I've never seen before that George Whitfield showed me. Look in Psalm 1. The 
psalmist says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. On his law, on his word, he meditates day and night. The, the person that meditates on the word of God day and night is a person like this, verse 3. He's like a tree planted by streams of water, yields its fruit in its season, its leaf does not wither, and all that he does, he prospers. So if you want to be fruitful, if you want to prosper, you need to meditate on the word of God. Meditation in Eastern mysticism, you know, Buddhism and Hinduism and those, those other Eastern religions, meditation in those religions is an emptying of mind. Your goal is to empty yourself of, in Buddhism's case, of all desire. You're, just, you're, you're trying to just empty, empty, empty. Biblical meditation is the exact opposite. You are trying to fill up your mind and fill up your heart with truth and think about it and turn it over in your mind so you can understand it better and apply it to your life. Now, let me show you the verse that George Whitfield showed me. I've read it before, but it's just never jumped out at me. But look in Psalm 39 with me. Psalm 39. By the way, how cool is it that a dead guy from the 1700s is, is, is mentoring me? Isn't that cool? Pretty awesome, isn't it? Psalm 39. Look what it says in verse 3. This is David. And David says, My heart became hot within me. How many want a hot heart for Jesus? Raise your hand if you want a hot heart for Jesus. Wait, wait, that's, you know, that's what the church needs in America. Let me just, let me, can I just preach for just a second? Our love for Jesus has grown cold in America. And to a large degree, we are just going through the religious motions and we wonder why we're losing our nation. We need hot hearts for Jesus. Hearts that are on fire for the Lord. So look what David says. My heart became hot within me. As I mused, that word muse means I thought, I, I meditated, I, I turned over in my mind. As I mused, the fire burned, then I spoke with my tongue. If you want your heart to burn brightly for the Lord Jesus Christ, you need to muse, you need to meditate on the word of God. And if you'll do that, if you read the Bible and then meditate on the Bible, your heart will grow hot Listen to this quote from George Whitfield. I love this illustration, by the way. Meditation to the soul is the same as digestion to the body. Everybody look at me for a moment. How many of you have ever read a, you know, a chapter of the Bible, and you close your Bible, and you went about your day, and if someone asked you 30 minutes later, hey, what would you read this morning? You, you would have no clue. Anybody ever been there? I mean, just no, no clue. You read something somewhere, Right? You know why? You, you took it in, but you didn't digest it. Right? And, and Whitfield says that meditation is, is soul digestion. You're taking in the Word of God and you're digesting it, so you're getting the, the good out of it. He writes, quoting Psalm 39, Whilst I was musing, says David, the fire kindled. And whilst the believer is musing on the works and word of God, especially that work of works, that wonder of wonders, the, that mystery of godliness, God manifests in the flesh. 
the Lamb of God slain for the sins of the world, he frequently feels the fire of divine love kindle so that he is obliged to speak with his tongue and tell of the loving kindness of the Lord to his soul. Be frequent, therefore, in meditation, all ye that desire to keep up and maintain, listen, a close and uniform walk with the Most High God. If you want to have a close walk with God, you need to make meditation, diligence in meditation, a part of your life. And here's how you do it. You read the Bible, and after you read, you spend some time either while you're driving or exercising or whatever you do, time with your, you're not distracted by something else, you think about what you read. You pray through what you read. And as you do that, God begins to help you to digest what you read, and it begins to show up in your life. You begin to live according to what you read. Your heart begins to burn hot because you're musing, you're meditating on the Word of God. One of my favorite things to do is to read my Bible in the morning and then when I'm running, uh, exercising, jogging, whatever, I love to, I love to during that moment, because, you know, to take my mind off the pain, <laughs> I, 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 I love to think about the, what I read and meditate on what I've read and, and, and spend that time talking with God through what I've read in the Bible and it makes it stick into your life. And so... Meditate on the Word of God. Next, fourth aspect of walking with God. Look for God's providential work in the circumstances of your life. Look for God's providential work in the circumstances of your life. Listen, if you know the Lord, you have a relationship with Him. And as you begin to look around you at your circumstances, you begin to see God's fingerprints everywhere if you're looking for them. You you see how God is providentially working around you for your good. And it helps you to walk with him because you're looking for what he's doing. It helps you to grow closer to him. Look for God's fingerprints, God's providential work in the circumstances of your life. If you look at life through those lenses, if, if you remind yourself every day, God is at work around me. God is doing some things around me. And you begin to look, you'll see his fingerprints. And it will amaze you. A lot of people miss God. A lot of us miss God because we're not looking for God and how he's working around us. We, uh, we lost today uh, a church member, Bob Agner, uh, passed away. He's in eternity now. He's with Jesus. He's had a uh, three-year uh, bout with, with cancer and he'd gotten to the point where it was debilitating and and uh, he was going through suffering and pain, and God in his mercy uh, took him home uh, to be with uh, his Lord and Savior. And so uh, while there's sadness from in, uh, in my heart and sadness on, in the heart of the family, uh, there's, there's, there's joy and there's peace that, that Bob is now with Jesus. And, and today, I'll just tell you this quick story. Um, today, I was trying to finish up my... My, uh, my message for tonight, and I was trying to get some things going for my Easter Sunday sermon, and I was in the office this morning, and uh, Frank had gone by, our associate pastor had gone by the hospital to, to, to see Bob and to see Karen and Josh and, and spend some time with their families. I knew, I, knew, I knew Frank was up there, and I knew he had 
touch base with them and was ministering to them. And if there's anything they needed, that, that Frank would take care of that. But I just had, I, I just, I couldn't get off my heart. I need to go by there. I need to go by there. And so, so I finished up some stuff very quickly. And, and I was originally going to go home for lunch, but I, I called Claire. I said, I'm, I'm going to run by the hospital. And, and, and so I was heading up to the hospital and I got off the elevator on floor seven. And I walked around the corner and Josh was walking out. And he walked up to me and he said, my dad just passed away. And so I walked in. I mean, he had just passed away. I was there with the family. And the only way I can explain that is, is the inner prompting of the Spirit. I just couldn't get off my mind. I needed, I, I couldn't, I knew, I, I knew that Frank had gone by there. I knew that they knew we loved him, were there for them. But I just couldn't get, I just, I, said, I, need, I just need to go by. And so, and so I was able to be there in that, in that moment. And, and that's just the goodness of God. And so I look back at that through the lenses of God's providence and I see God's fingerprints. Don't you? And if, we, if, we, if we're looking for his fingerprints, we will see those fingerprints everywhere. And so we need to look for his work all around us. It'll help us to appreciate our walk with him in our life. Let me give you another aspect of walking with God. Not only should we be sensitive to the work around us, we should be sensitive to God's work in us. Be sensitive to God's inward leading by his spirit. Hebrews 8.14 says this. Turn to Hebrew, uh, I'm sorry, Romans 8.14. So what Paul writes. Who all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. So it speaks to being led by the Spirit. Sensitive to the inward leading of His Spirit. So we need to constantly be looking outwardly at God's work around us and be sensitive to the inward work of the Spirit. What God is doing and how God is directing us inwardly. Because the Spirit leads us if we let Him fill up our lives. We let him direct our lives. He leads us. He guides us. And it's hard to explain how that all plays out, how that happens, but the Spirit does lead us and he works around us providentially. So so if we're going to walk with God, listen, we're constantly looking around at what, what our Father's doing around us. And we're constantly thinking, God, what are you doing within me? How are you leading me? What do you want me to, 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 to focus on? What do you want me to, to do? And as you do that, you grow closer and closer to God. Be sensitive to God's inward leading by his Spirit. Number six, obey his commandments. John 14, 15, Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. John 15, he talked about keeping his commandments. If you want to abide in him, obey his commandments. It's one thing to tell Jesus you love him. It's an entirely different thing and better thing to show him you love him by obeying him. That is the demonstration of our love for Jesus, that we obey his commands. We take his commandments seriously. Listen, if, if, you, if you are not taking his commandments seriously, you can't say you love Jesus. Because Jesus says, if you love me, keep my commandments. Obey his commandments. They help you to walk closer and closer to God. The, 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 the more you grow in obedience, the more intimate your walk with God will become. And then last, walk with other godly people. I'm going to say it in a different way. Watch the company you keep. Psalm 1, where we're told to watch out who we're around. Don't sit in the seat of scoffers. Stand in the way of sinners. Look what it says in Psalm 101. This is David's psalm. David's trying to walk in integrity. He's trying to walk with the Lord. And look what he says in Psalm 101, verse 2. 
He says, I will ponder the way that is blameless. Oh, when will you come to me? I will walk with integrity of heart within my house. I will not set before my eyes anything that is worthless. I, listen, I hate the work of those who fall away. It shall not cling to me. A perverse heart shall be far from me. I will know nothing of evil. So David's saying, I'm not going to let folks that are anti-God, who are, who are anti-truth, I'm not going to let them influence me. I'm not going to let them influence me to live a life that moves me away from the Lord. I want to be around people that are going to move me to the Lord. Walk with godly people. Have you ever been around somebody that just loves Jesus and just by being around them, it makes you want to love Jesus more? Have you ever been around somebody like that? I can name people right now in my, in my history of, of, of growing up in church and, and I can think of some godly folks just by being around them, I wanted to love Jesus more. So that's good. Be around folks like that. Don't be around folks that are, that are pulling you in the wrong direction, all right? You have boundaries in your life. Of course, folks that are far from God, you want to share truth with them, share Jesus with them, you know, love them, but you don't let them influence you. You influence them with the gospel. Walk with godly people. Watch the company you keep. If you want to walk with God, walk with others who are walking with God. And so you say, how can I be diligent like Enoch? He was diligent. He sought after God. He drew near to God. How can I be diligent? How can I build into my life those things that are important to walk with God? Read the Bible, pray, meditate, look for God's providential work in the circumstances of your life, be sensitive to God's inward leading by his spirit, obey his commandments, and walk with other godly people. Watch the company you keep. All right? So we learn from from Enoch how you walk with God. Now, very quickly... Back to Genesis. Enoch was taken directly to heaven as a witness that God honors the life that honors him. So wait, why did God allow Enoch to bypass death? I believe it was as a demonstration that God is pleased by a godly life. He's pleased by someone that walks with him. And so his taking Enoch away and it being recorded in Genesis and in Hebrews is just a testimony to us that God honors the life that honors him. And so, let me just say this. I want to be more like Enoch. How about you? I I really do. I want to be more like Enoch. Now, let me just close by saying this. As we've thought about this chapter and the hope of redemption, we've seen the presence of a godly man. In the middle of all this depravity, there's a godly man. But I also want you to notice, just very quickly, the the godly lineage. Turn back with me to Genesis chapter 5. Genesis chapter 5. I'm going to walk you through this lineage really quick. Make a couple of comments and we'll be through. Starting with Enoch. Enoch had lived 65 years. He fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years. after he had, And he had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God and he was not for God took him. When Methuselah had lived 187 years, he fathered Lamech. Methuselah lived after he fathered Lamech 782 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Methuselah were 969 years and he died. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah, saying, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work, from the painful toil of our hands. Lamech lived after he fathered Noah 595 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Lamech were 777 years and he died. 
and Noah was 500 years old. Noah fathered Shem, Ham, and Japheth. So we see this lineage, Enoch to Methuselah, Methuselah to Lamech, Lamech to Noah, and that's critical because Noah was the one that God spared from the worldwide flood, Noah and his family, and he started over. So we can all, we can all trace our roots back to Noah because God started over with Noah and his family. He preserved him in the midst of worldwide destruction because of his godliness. So we see Enoch, Methuselah, Lamech, Noah, they were a godly lineage that led to the preservation of humanity. Now, Enoch walked with God, we saw that, and he had Methuselah. Now, the name Methuselah means son of the javelin, or man of the javelin. Javelin's an instrument of, of, of warfare, right? A javelin, a spear, man of the spear, man of the javelin. Now, we know in Jude chapter 14 and 15, and by the way, Jude is the one chapter book right before Revelation in the New Testament, the book of Jude says that Enoch preached. So not only did Enoch walk with God, Enoch was preaching of coming judgment, that one day the Lord would come back and deal out retribution. So he's preaching, hey, you need to get right with God. There's a judgment in the future. So Enoch was preaching, and he had a son named Man of the Javelin. Now, some scholars believe that he named his son Man of the Javelin as a picture of of the destruction that was coming. Like a javelin, like a spear, God's judgment will come if we, if we, and it was saying, do not get right with God. He expected God to judge the evil that he saw all around him. And perhaps that name Methuselah, man of the javelin, foreshadowed this. And here's why we believe this. Listen, Methuselah, 969 years old, died the year that the flood came. Do you know that? Methuselah died the year that the flood came. How do you know that? Well, when you add up the ages of Methuselah, Lamech, and Noah, when their eldest sons were born, 187 plus 182 plus 500, plus the 100 years that transpired between uh, Genesis 5.32 and 7.11, you get a total of 969 years. So you put all those years together, and the flood came the year that Methuselah died. Maybe even Methuselah died in the flood. We don't know. But he lived 969 years up until the time of the flood, which might be a reason that he had such longevity, why he was the oldest man in the Bible. Perhaps the longevity of Methuselah, man of the javelin, judgment is coming, is a picture of God's patience in giving people an opportunity to repent. Judgment's coming like a javelin, but notice, man of the javelin lived almost 1,000 years before the flood came. And so some scholars believe, and I tend to agree with them, that Methuselah's long life was a picture of judgment that was coming, but he lived a long time because God was giving people an opportunity to repent. Which reminds me of 2 Peter 3, 9, when it says that God is not slack concerning his promises, that God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. The reason he is slow in returning, the reason he hasn't come back yet and said everything right, is because he wants more and more folks to repent and get right with him. God is patient. God is patient. So Enoch has Methuselah, son, man of the javelin. Methuselah begot Lamech. Lamech begat Noah, and we see he expected him to play a key role in God's plan. Now, 
There's a Lamech in Cain's line too. This is the different Lamech. This is the Cain and Seth's line. So if you see the name Lamech in chapter 4, Lamech in chapter 5, two different Lamechs, all right? Common name, that time, two different Lamechs. But look what Lamech says in verse 28. It says, Lamech had lived 182 years. He fathered a son and called his name Noah, saying, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. So he believed that God had a plan for Noah, that he was going to use Noah somehow. He was a key role in God's plan. Derek Kidner writes this, We have no clue to the meaning of the name Lamech, but both its bearers, remembered by their words, the Cainite, one for his arrogance in chapter 4, verse 23, he didn't think retribution would come based on the murders that he committed, The Sethite for his yearning, his yearning for rest through Noah. His oracle on the birth of his son is a wordplay, passing over the obvious etymology of the name Noah, rest, for the somewhat similar verb, comfort. And so he's saying here that he thought Noah would bring comfort. And Kidner writes, Noah's mission, however, was to be more radical than anything Lamech envisaged. And so Lamech had Noah. Noah, the Bible says in 2 Peter, was a preacher of righteousness And God chose to spare Noah and his family when he sent a worldwide flood and start over again with humanity. So we can trace this godly, godliness in Noah back to Lamech, back to Methuselah, son of the javelin, back to Enoch, and eventually back to Seth. And so even in the midst of the depravity in Genesis, there's this godly line that will preserve humanity. Do you see God's grace in that? Do you see God's hope in that? Let me give you a summary of chapter 5. And we're going to close down. I'll take, a, I'll take one question. So make it a good one. After God created man and woman in his image and with his blessing, the human race living under the curse multiplied continually and died just as regularly, with the exception of Enoch who walked with God, all of which prompted a hope for relief from the curse. The presence of this godly line gives humanity hope that maybe God will do something about this curse. And eventually, through Noah, God comes to a man named Abraham. Through Abraham, he builds a nation called the the Israelites. Through the Israelites, he sends a man born of the Virgin Mary, the God-man named Jesus Christ. Through Jesus, we all can be saved. We trust him as our Lord and Savior. There is hope in the midst of depravity. Amen? That's all pictured in Genesis chapter 5.